I hope you've been enjoying the distribution. I want to hear from you. Please go to the link in the show description to provide your feedback on the topics and guests you would like to hear from. I appreciate your time and hope to keep giving you more of the conversations you enjoy. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Mark Gabay, Global CEO of LaSalle Investment Management, a position he assumed in January of 2021. Mark is responsible for strategic leadership of LaSalle's 900 plus employees and oversight of the firm's 75 billion of assets, including investment strategy and operational activities across North America, Asia Pacific, and Europe. LaSalle Investment Management is one of the world's leading investment managers focused solely on one asset class, real estate. This focus enables LaSalle to deliver competitive investment performance along with the highest levels of client service. On today's episode, we discuss Mark's career, and we specifically dive into how his work in Asia during the savings and loan crisis and the GFC helped prepare him for the patience and grit required to operate in a highly dislocated market like the one we're in today. Additionally, we spend time on unpacking Mark's leadership style, specifically discussing how to attract and retain employees and what the future may hold for CRE markets worldwide. I've always appreciated Mark's candor and the ease with which we can chat about the markets, and I know you will too. Let's get into it. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brandon. Happy to be here. Great. Well, I like to have all my guests start by introducing themselves, so maybe you can give us a little bit of kind of a high-level background, and then we can dig into it in more detail. Sure. So currently, I'm the global CEO for LaSalle Investment Management. I've been with, with the firm for 13 years three years in this current role. And I've been in, in real estate for about 30 years. So maybe let me just let me just stop right there and see what else you want to hear about my background. I want to hear it all. So let's, 30 years is a long time in real estate. You've been through a few cycles. Let's go all the way back to, you know, as early as we can. How did you get into the real estate business? Did you grow up in a real estate family? Kind of what, what brought you in? And then maybe kind of just walk us through the kind of trajectory of your career and you know, what brought you to LaSalle Investment Management? Sure. I definitely describe it to people as a, as a random walk. So what I, what I mean by that is I studied architecture as an, an, as an undergrad. And while I was going through that design degree, I got very interested in the economic side of buildings and what really drove the decision-making around that. And that, that had me pivot to basically both the financial side and, and, and the legal side of land use and development. The break for me probably was getting an internship while at college with a valuation company, Arthur D. Little. For people that remember that management consulting firm, they used to have a real estate valuation group. And I got an internship there, and it was basically kind of an analyst training program in the fundamentals of uh, financial underwriting. And that really led to my first job post-college, which was for a commercial appraisal firm in San Francisco. And I spent the first two, three years of my career basically underwriting every single type of asset class or every type of building in, 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 the, in the Bay Area and other parts of the country. And I think that gave me sort of a, a grounding in the basics of understanding valuation. 
Then the SNL crisis, slowdown in real estate, a lot of sort of layoffs, you know, not as much direction over there in the US. And so I pivoted. I always wanted to have my own coffee business. And that's a whole nother podcast. We want to get into that, that whole discussion. But with a good friend of mine, we moved to the Midwest, uh, Columbus, Ohio, and opened a coffee shop by Ohio State University. The idea there was we were going to try to open as many retail outlets as we could, take all that free cash flow and roll it into apartment buildings, and then ride off into the sunset, not having to do anything else. <laughs> we, we got partially there. We got to four four locations, found that it's a lot more difficult to run multi-location retail. So I have a lot of appreciation for places like McDonald's and In-N-Out. They're able to deliver consistency and make money. And effectively, we got out of that business after about five years and, and went our went our separate ways. And it was at that point in my career where the crossroad would have been either go to business school and get an MBA, or I had been getting calls from my, my prior employers who had now morphed into more than just a valuation company. They became a special servicing company as well, coming out of the SNL crisis. And they, they were looking for people that wanted to go to Japan. This is 1997 and set up the first special servicer in, in Japan and start investing in non-performing loans. So long story short, that's how I, I got to Asia in, in late 97, early 98 and ended up really spending more than 20 years of the 30 years, you know, in, in Asia, starting with distressed debt then moving over into equity, then into commercial debt. Uh, and so I was able to see all parts of the, the capital stack. Had a very interesting pit stop at Lehman Brothers for seven years. That's another topic for another podcast. And was really able to be, I would say, the, the benefit of being in the investment bank at that time was that you were really an absolute investor. It wasn't about target returns. It was really about risk return and absolute returns. After the, the Lehman bankruptcy was able to, you know, we were bought out by Nomura Securities. So stayed with Nomura Securities for two years or so. And then after that, when that contract expired, joined LaSalle in, in, in 2010. So as I say, it's sort of a, a random walk. I don't think anyone could have scripted this particular move from you know, being in commercial valuation to building most of your career in Asia, and then ultimately getting an opportunity to run a, a global platform. So there's a lot to unpack. And, and we first met probably somewhere in 2002. 2008 in Hong Kong when I, you know, when I was living in Hong Kong, you were there too, right? Or were you still in, in Japan at that time? I had just moved to Hong Kong kind of late, yeah, late 2007 and that started that particular run. Right. So the coffee business, we won't go too into it, but kind of what's the passion for coffee? Well, I mean, I think, look, everybody in real estate's fueled by coffee at the end of the day. <laughs> We've got to be you know, listen, I, here's the, the real quick on this. I think it's interesting. This is how off one can be on it, on one's market analysis. When we went into that coffee business in, in 1992, that was pre-Starbucks. And so from a timing perspective, that would have been really the right time to sort of build a chain. We went into, into, the, into the Midwest because we thought California was saturated which that was completely incorrect. And I think what we found out in the Midwest is that the wallet, right? The wallet spend wasn't as large. Like in, in California, people were comfortable spending 
you know, for the higher, more expensive drinks, right? The cappuccinos, the mochas, et cetera. In the Midwest, they're very happy with just flavored coffee at sort of a, a buck nine. So, you know, we had the, the the traffic, but we didn't have the dollar volume. And then it had to do with sort of market market fit. But yeah, we got off course. I, th- I thought it was kind of kind of an interesting side turn for us to move into the Midwest and do the coffee business. Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating. You know, I think there's a lot of parallels in business lessons that can be learned through these entrepreneurial endeavors. You, you also mentioned, you know, the reason that you moved to Asia in 97 was to join a special servicer. For our listeners who, you know, aren't as familiar with the SNL crisis and a special servicer, what did that mean? What were you actually doing and why Asia? What was happening? What was unique to Asia in 1997 that created this opportunity that, that brought you there? Sure. So simplistically speaking, a special, a special servicer is really a collector on non-performing or bad debt. And a lot of that ability to collect on those, on those debts are really governed by a pretty strong regulatory framework. For instance, you can't sort of harass people and call them 20 times a day to try to collect the debt. Japan was unique in that it was coming out of the burst of the bubble and the Japanese banks that were saddled with quite a bit of non-performing loans. But there was no legal framework actually around debt collection in, in Japan at that time. So the government, with a lot of advice from really the Resolution Trust Corporation, set up the kind of legal framework for the actual collection of bad debt that were on the books of a lot of these Japanese banks. And that sort of facilitated the sale of those loans. And Ernst & Young and PwC and advisors like that were organizing these sort of non-performing loan sales. And we were part of an investment banking group that was bidding on that. And our specific role at the time I was with GMAC Commercial Mortgage, our specific role was to be the special servicer. And we did receive the first license in Japan to be a sort of a bad debt collector. There's a ton of stories in that whole particular episode, but that was sort of the the reason that a lot of foreign capital came to Japan in the, in the late 90s was to participate in that particular uh, market. But you needed the ability to kind of special service, or in you know in in the asset in the private equity world, it'd be sort of an asset manager. It's just sort of a specialized asset manager when it comes to debt. And then how did you make the transition from, you know, GMAT commercial mortgage to Lehman? You, you kind of alluded to it, probably could do a whole podcast, but let's spend a few minutes just kind of on that, on that chapter. Cause I think it was what, seven, seven, eight years you were at Lehman. Yes. I was at Lehman from 2001 to, to 2008. I mean, of course, all of us remember that faithful day, September 15th, when that bankruptcy occurred, it was a pretty fluid motion. I'd say what, what happened. You know, at, at that time in Japan, this is early 2000s, a lot of people were moving around to different organizations. There was a lot happening with the Japanese banks. If people recall, there was a group named Ripplewood that had bought Shinsei Bank, and, and Ripplewood was a private equity shop, and they had basically hired the majority of the Lehman team that was running the principal balance sheet at the time, Brian Prince, et cetera. And so that left a big opening at Lehman at that time. And through personal contacts, we basically moved a large group of us, about 10 of us from GMAC over to Lehman Brothers in, in 2001. So it, there was an opportunity there. They were looking for a team. You know, we were an established team, you know, on the ground already in, in Japan. And we just seamlessly stepped into the, the balance sheet business o- over there in 2001. 
So obviously in the next, you know, seven years were kind of the lead up to to the bankruptcy. You know, you've now had what over a decade to to look back on that. I mean, how would you describe that period, that time at Lehman, kind of leading up to 2008, you know, kind of the real estate footprint in Asia? Give us the overview. Yeah, I think at that, that time, the the commercial markets, real estate markets were still developing in Asia. There still was non-performing loan activity in Japan and some of the other markets. We, we were active in Southeast Asia. You know, we got as exotic as the Philippines in terms of buying non-performing loans. So as I mentioned earlier, the interesting thing about the, the investment banks at the time is that it was an absolute return business, right? So wherever you thought there was good value, you could generate some revenues, you, you were free to invest, whether that was debt or equity. That changed a little bit later when Lehman introduced third-party funds and the equity portion went into the fund business, but we continue to have a pretty substantial balance sheet on the debt side. The other notable events that happened in, in Japan was really the regulatory framework for the Japanese REIT market, and that happened in 2004. That also gave a big boost to kind of commercial real estate in the region. I mean, similar to today, you know, Japan still was the and is the largest percentage of sort of our investable universe. And so even though we invested, you know, up throughout the region, Australia, Korea, China, Taiwan, Japan still had the bulk of the, the exposure uh, for us when, when we were at Lehman. And a lot of that was in debt format, but as you can expect, it was very high levered preferred equity type debt, trying to generate equity returns in, in a sort of debt structure. So we, we had a ton of flexibility. We obviously had access to the, the balance sheet. And I mean, just the simplistic lesson in history there is that when you look back at all this, it's pretty clear there, there was no alignment between our side of the house, which was we were investing, right? And sort of the back of the house that was providing the capital, right? That was all done in a very leveraged format on the bank's balance sheet, whereas that really wasn't our area, if you will. And so all they did for us is just allocate us the capital. So it was quite easy to just have capital and go ahead and invest it. We weren't so worried about, you know, where did that that capital come from? How is it structured? You know, we were always sort of surprised when they explained to us our return on equity for our business, it usually had like three to four digits on it. And we were like, that doesn't mathematically make any sense. And then we got into the discussion how the banks were, were fairly levered up at 40, 45 to one. And so you're able to do that. So, you know, everyone kind of knew what that situation was. I think the mistake was they, they just believe that they can continue to roll over that sort of short term position and keep sort of being able to apply it to their business model. But obviously that turned out not to be true. So misalignment between asset and liability is sort of your, right? It's sort of a business school 101, but that's a, effectively what happened back then. Interesting. So Lehman collapses September 2008. What was the relationship? So did Nomura buy the Asia platform of Lehman or was it real estate? What did, what did that transaction look like? Yeah, as you can imagine, that period was complete helter-skelter you know, Le- Lehman was not really prepared for a bankruptcy. And, and usually when you have a bankruptcy of that size of a financial company, you'd expect you'd have an orderly kind of liquidation to it. But that's not what happened. E- every region almost behaved on its own. If you recall, Barclays quickly stepped in and took over the U.S. business. 
the European business was kind of left to its own volition. There, there wasn't really many takers. And fortunate for us in Asia, Nemora Securities was very interested in the, in the Asia franchise. Uh, we were about 3,000 people at the time. And we struck a deal with them for them to basically buy the platform. But really what they were buying were 3,000 people, all the assets, everything else that we had on our balance sheet was all tied up in, in different jurisdictions and in, in bankruptcy court and various levels of, of liquidation. So it was very fortunate that we, I think it took about 30 days, but by mid-October, all of us had had a job. And then it sort of went, went from there in terms of how long it lasted. I mean, the standard contract was sort of a two-year contract, which was sort of uh, definitely a gift back in, the, in that period, because there were, was, weren't many people hiring at that time, besides for a few sort of distressed specialist shops. So it was, it was a pretty interesting part of history to be part of. And I think the Lehman alumni organization is still pretty strong. I mean, I'm in touch with a lot of those people. Some of those, some of those people work with me at LaSalle today. And so there's been a lot, a lot of good continuity off that platform. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the Lehman alumni and, and I'm close with many of them as well. And I think, you know, there's also the the NPL, the Japan NPL non-performing loan alumni, where, I mean, it's amazing how many professionals grew up in that environment and are now leaders like yourself at big investment managers. I think the the experiences are kind of once in a once in a generation type of experiences. Would agree with all of that. I mean, I think that the advice I give people is, you know, in real estate is, yeah, try to get exposed to as many different parts of the business as you can, whether it's asset management or it's acquisitions or reporting. I mean, all of it, you know, you you can learn something from all of it. And then the cycles will give you, you know, different opportunities like we have right coming up right now. And also understanding the different components of the capital stack, right, between debt and equity. And and if you have a complete understanding of that picture, I think you have a much more valuable skill set. So it's 2010. You're where are you? You're in Hong Kong at that point, and you join LaSalle Investment Management. I believe you joined as co-head and CIO of APAC. Is that right? Still, I joined. Jack Chandler was there at the time. I joined really as CIO first, and then I think with about a, a year, I became uh, co-head for Asia Pacific. But CIO was the the first step that they were looking for. If you remember, LaSalle had an Asia 3 fund, which at the time was one of the largest op funds in the region. It, it was raised in 2007 with $3 billion U.S. dollars in equity. It still had something like $1.8 billion of dry powder at the time that, that I joined. There was only about 10 months left on the investment period. And, and we tried to be as judicious as we could with investing that capital. We invested about half of it, which that, that second half investment really kind of saved that fund and it ended up being a a 1x fund for a fund that was you know in the heart of the financial crisis in terms of having a significant amount deployed prior to, to 08 so based in hong kong i was then co-heading the the region and really did that up until sort of the end of 2020 and i started this role as global head um, in the beginning of 21 so you're now global CEO of LaSalle Investment Management. Give us an overview of the business, LaSalle Investment Management's business today. Sure. So we're, we're global. We, we describe ourselves as a relative value type investor, which means we've got products 
you know, ranging the entire spectrum from core to opportunistic. We also have debt products in, in a credit platform in Europe and a smaller one to some degree in, in the U.S. We're heavily focused, I'd say, on the core side and the open-ended vehicle side. We've got five of those vehicles across, across the globe. We're a little under 900 people in total in 25 different offices across the world, although the main offices for, for us are Chicago, London, and in Asia, it's really either Singapore or Tokyo or, or both of them. Uh, and those are sort of our larger, our larger footprints. We're 89 billion globally of AUM under, under management. Um, we also have a securities and a indirect business within that. We're not exactly a third, a third, a third around the globe, but we're pretty, we're pretty close when it comes down to it. And like I said, we're probably two thirds core oriented mandates and sort of one third high return. You were living in Asia and you were awarded or, or you know, appointed as, as global CEO. Was it a requirement that you return to the States? Did you return to the States for personal reasons? And then, you know, how did your time in Asia impact or influence kind of your leadership style and your approach to markets, you know, now at the helm of a global organization? Yeah, so you've got two, two questions in there. So let me start with, did I relocate, which is sort of the where's Waldo question when it comes when it comes to me, we had come back to the U.S. temporarily right before COVID, and I would say in 19, and, and then COVID kind of changed that calculation for us. So technically, I'm still based in, in Hong Kong in terms of where my employment is, but the way I looked at it as, as trying to you know, run a global organization, I felt like being you know, necessarily tied down to one office was not necessarily the best way to run it for this particular job. So when you look at my calendar, I would say 60% of the time, I'm somewhere on the road, either in one of our offices or visiting one of our clients. And if I'm not, then I'm sort of back in, in, in the US, in California, mostly because you know our kids are already older and, and in college or in boarding school. So we got no children at home. I think that sort of drives your calendar quite a bit. And both of our parents are, are older. So after being away for so long, being able to spend some time in the, in the U.S. made a lot of sense personally, but also as for running an organization that obviously I knew Asia quite well. I didn't know the U.S. and Europe as well. This gives me the flexibility to go to those offices and, you know, stay for more than a few days. So when I go to London, you know, I try to stay, you know, one to two months to sort of get kind of a better feel. Chicago is a little bit easier to get to. I can get there more frequently. So people are always intrigued, kind of where where am I? And, and I keep that calendar purposely secretive so I can just show up. And I can show up in different places at different times. In terms of like lessons learned, I think what you learn in, in Asia, first of all, I think is, is a certain level of cultural sensitivity and that all markets are not not alike. And I think you, you have to operate in those markets to be able to have that perspective. And I think that definitely helps when you come to sort of Europe and you try to understand the market situation in, in Europe. And even in the Americas, you could start arguing that there are some cultural differences in, in a lot of the, the markets and how certain markets behave. So I, I would think that's the first lesson learned that you could take away from working in Asia is, is really 
paying attention to some of the intangibles in the markets that sort of drive a lot of the outcomes versus just the, the strict numbers. The second part is I, I do think if you've if most of your career has been in a growth market like Asia has been, I would say you sort of have a different view around risk in that you're generally a lot more comfortable with, with risk because you've been through a lot of different situations that are either more complex or the data is not perfect. You don't have all the information. You have to take a little bit more risk in order to get the outcomes that you want. And I think for us as a, as a shop globally, you know, that's part of a, of a pivot, a pivot we're trying to make. And, and the way we're trying to do it is really through our message of, a, of alignment where we think there's a differentiator there for us in that the, the GP equity in all of our funds almost exclusively comes from employee co-invest, which that's a big difference from how LaSalle operated historically. So we have our own money in any of the strategies that we put forward in, into the to the market. And so to be able to do that as a, all the way up and down the platform, not just the senior people, it's sort of trying to teach everyone how to to really look at risk and what level of risk they're comfortable with in their own portfolios, which is no, no different than what a lot of our limited partners do when they start thinking about allocations and how much should they be in core, how much should they be in credit, how much should they be in pure equity and you know and what kind of equity. So I would say those are the two two main things, um, understanding risk, culture, and complexity. And maybe, maybe that's three. Sounds like three, but I, I think it's important. I mean, how do you, you know, is it common or uncommon to have employees investing in the GP of all of your deals? Like what's the, you know, some of our listeners obviously work inside of large investment managers, many don't. So to me, you know, well, I won't even say what it seems to me. How do you find that kind of relative to the peer set? We think it's common, okay? I think a lot of GPs have their people invest in the deals. I think what's uncommon for us is the way we've structured it and also the depth of participation. So, you know, as you know, every jurisdiction has a different sort of regulation and who's an accredited investor. And so we spent a lot of time trying to be able to offer this to as many people in our platform as possible, right, without, and making it voluntary. So they don't have to make these investments. So we're about 900 people. I, I would say about, you know, 500 or 550 of our 900 global employees are eligible as a credit investor. And we've got to take up rate in the sort of 400 range at the moment and growing. So that's what's different. I think, I don't think there's another platform out there that has 400 people or half their population roughly invested in and aligned in the strategies. And so you can almost think of it as if we almost like crowdfund or crowdsource our GP co-invest, because like I said, it's voluntary. So sure, the, the key people or the direct team generally invests, and you see that across a lot of our competitive set. But what's interesting is, can, can you get somebody in client accounting, for instance, sitting in Chicago, investing in you know Asia Opportunity 6, for instance, which is our current flagship fund in, in Asia. And we had record take up for that particular strategy when it launched it. And we actually had to turn people away for that particular one. So that particular strategy, you know, had a lot of, spoke to a lot of people, 
and a lot of people came out of pocket for that. So I think it's it's creative in that it's really trying to democratize the GP, and we we have worked through a structure on on how to roll that out efficiently every single time a product is or a fund is offered that requires you know GP co invest in it. Fascinating. That's obviously you know bringing the people into this the the continuum of risk and reward. How would you describe your leadership style at LaSalle? I mean, what's your what's your general framework in terms of how you think about leadership for you and your your team? You know, I think the the most important thing that we talk about is transparency, and I think it's the same way that our limited partners right want to be treated. Right, you always hear they you know if there's bad news or it's not going so well, they sort of want to know. The worst thing you can do is sort of surprise people in, in our industry. So I think that's a firm part of our leadership approach. The, the second one is we are truly global in terms of how our compensation is structured. So we're not product by product, we're not region by region, you know, and it's really trying to bring about kind of a collective approach to the business. So I would say, working really as a team now can have more benefits because in effect, there's one bonus pool. There's not a series of, of bonus pools. So the second pillar of our foundation, I would definitely say is alignment. Within alignment, there's sort of collaboration. And then lastly, I think when you think of Listal as a brand globally, you know, I think we're held with, or we hold very high sort of ethical values. And I think ethics plays a big part in how we approach the, the business. I mean, we may not take the most risk compared to a lot of our competitive set. And, you know, we try to really be thoughtful about the relative risk return and what, what that means. And how do you navigate these particular cycles that you have these ups and downs? I mean, LaSalle has been in, in the business for over 40 years. So we're one of the longer standing specialist real estate, private equity groups out there. But I think if we do a good job communicating those three things to our population, then I, I sort of feel like the rest will take care of itself and you don't have to, I mean, the last thing we want to do is sort of put a lot of rules and regulations and micromanagement around people given the size of our organization. Last question on leadership. I mean, when you came into the organization, you obviously were already operating at the executive leadership team as the head of Asia. Has anything been surprising to you, either positive or negative? once you assume the global CEO role a few years ago? I'd say what's been surprising is the fact that we were running as a series of regional businesses and being able to convert that very, very quickly into a global business when it came to the compensation side, the equation and, and how you sort of handle that. I would have thought that you might, you know, it, it, that was a big change. And I was kind of surprised that that change went, has gone as smoothly as it has. And it has changed the nature of our conversations amongst our, you know, global management committee. For instance, in the past, if I was running Asia, how much did I really care about what was going on in Europe? I had my own P&L. It was pretty clear what, how that was, was going to work. I mean, now it's different. Now I think we all look at decisions uh, jointly. We talk about what's best for the, the business. The other surprise is, you know, the employee co-invest concept was definitely something that we wanted to implement. I think we were surprised by the level of take up 
and the actual notional amount of dollars that was raised out of that in the first 18 months, we had thought the pacing of it would be kind of a lot slower for whatever reason. We didn't really have any any data. I think that was a surprise. So both of those were sort of positive surprises. I think, I mean, there wasn't really anything negative, but I mean, what what became clear to me is when you're running a global platform, right, you still need scaled products to be able to make your margins work. And we have a handful of scaled products, but they could even be further scaled. And the, the more they're scaled, the better position we're in. And just sort of the, the difficulty involved in, in scaling a product, it's, it's really easy to do a series of kind of small strategies with the belief that they're going to grow over time versus being able to get into something that can scale a little bit faster. So I think you know, that, that's sort of the challenge, I think, in our industry. If you're, if you're focused on annuity revenues, right, you want to be able to scale a product as quickly as you can, not over a 10, 15-year period, for instance. Maybe elaborate on that scaled product approach. So like, what's an example of a, of a scaled product versus a non-scaled product in this construct? So we, we, had a fair, we still do have a fair amount of business in the separate account side. And, and I think we have some very large separate account clients that have been with us for a long time and we continue to, to implement those strategies. But we also had a lot of sort of subscale separate accounts. And so when you looked at it in aggregate, it looked like it was a pretty large number, but there's so much complexity and customization to each one of those that I think it makes it difficult, right, to sort of scale them. On the opposite end of the spectrum, we've got an open-ended core fund in the U.S. called JLL IPT, which is marketed through retail distribution networks. And we've watched that thing scale very, very quickly over the last last couple of years. And it continues to kind of draw capital from very different investor group than our typical institutional one, which is a good one to have. So th- those are two examples of what I'm talking about. That makes sense. We'll come to the composition of the investors in, in a bit. Curious to get your take. So you've been through, you know, you mentioned 30 years in the commercial real estate business. You've been through multiple cycles. You know, we're recording this in December of 2023. Curious to get your take. Like, how does this current cycle or current market environment compare and contrast to what you've experienced in past cycles that you've lived through? Yeah, I think people say, you know, each cycle kind of has its own imprint. And I think this one definitely does. I, I would say, first of all, Besides for the fact that I think all of us knew there was going to be an interest rate cycle change, I think, you know, very few of us had a good idea of exactly when it was going to happen and and, and the level of sort of severity of it. But it was pretty clear that at some point the interest rate cycle was going to change. So that's one dimension of this backdrop is trying to understand where is the interest rate and the credit cycle going to, to normalize at. But then it feels like there's a series of other dimensions that are impacting, you know, this particular cycle change that we have. And and a lot of them are sort of less quantifiable, which is sort of, right, the stop start of COVID, all the inflationary pressures, geopolitics, climate change. This feels like a multi-dimensional variable impact cycle that is very, very hard to read from a timing or duration perspective, 
how it's going to play out. So I think that's a probably a long, I could have just said, this is the most complicated one to kind of understand. And when you look back at the GFC, in a way, in hindsight, that was kind of simplistic, right? Massive shock to the system, all real estate assets, regardless of where they were, or what they were, went down in value for a reasonable amount of time and then sort of rebounded. This doesn't feel like this. This feels like you're going to have continued bifurcation. You're going to have continued maybe rotation out of the asset class. You're going to have a bigger, wide range of outcomes between the winners and the, and the losers. So it's it's multidimensional from, from that perspective, which on one hand uh, makes it very interesting, but on the other hand makes it really challenging to try to navigate through and explain especially to our cohort of people who, right, in the last 12, 12 years have not gone through a down cycle, have only seen real estate go up. And, and so that it's really a shock that now you're seeing real estate values go down. Yeah. I mean, values are going down, or at least, you know, we know that they should be, but I think the reality is transactions are largely stuck or stalled. If you look into your crystal ball, I mean, what gets us kind of unstuck? And I know there's a lot of talk about marking the books down. We've seen fairly precipitous decline in the in the public markets where they've marked their books. Private markets don't have to. So valuations, depending on who you're talking to, may be arbitrarily high, which is not really what's happening in reality, but there's no financing. So nobody's trading. I mean, you know, I'm telling you what you already know, but like, how do we get out of this situation? The short answer, it's going to take more time. I mean, I don't think there's anything magical in that calculation. If you think about it, the beauty of the private markets is that they don't react in real time to changes in either liquidity or or changes to the interest rate curve that's out there. I mean, they're impacted by it for sure, 100%, but the reaction's not immediate. So I do think we still have a few quarters to go before we we see some level of normalization. I do think the market, the broader market is overreacting to the, the level of potential rate cuts that could happen in 24. So I think you'll start to see the normalization process starting in 24, but intuitively doesn't feel like we're going to be done in within that calendar year. Now, I wish we could be, that'd be better for, for all of us. But given the complexity of how we're viewing this cycle, I think it only makes sense that to unwind that complexity is just time, right? I mean, a lot of people talk about how, you know, constrained supply is going to help help our industry. And I would agree with that, but the amount of time necessary for that constrained supply to filter through the system to be able to change the supply-demand equilibrium, that, that's not a 12-month period, as we know. That takes a lot longer. Our baseline is that this is going to be tougher for longer, and you have to sort of prepare prepare for that. And if we're wrong, then that then that's upside. And so if you think about it, you know, it's kind of like NPL thinking, right? You just think sort of the worst, and you price kind of the worst. And knowing that you're hoping for a better outcome and you, you'll, you'll, you'll do a lot better. So we try not to be overly negative. I think it's easy to be overly negative right now. We try to be balanced in, in our, our viewpoint. But I do think the valuation cycle will take a little bit more time on the private side. I mean, you've seen on the public side, 
some pretty insane rebounds in the last couple of weeks, right? That is, that's taken it from a negative return sector to a positive return. So the markets have the ability to do that, I would say. Private, less so, but this isn't a liquidity issue. I mean, th- th- there is capital out there. It's just not flowing to, right to certain types of real estate. And it's definitely not flowing at peak pricing, given the changes in the cost of capital, which completely makes sense. You mentioned a few things that I think are interesting. I mean, one is the the fact that the benefit of the private markets is that they do not react in real time. And I, I think, you know, you, you mentioned the, the retail product that you have and, and like, what are you seeing in terms of non-institutional appetite for private markets and specifically private real estate? What have the flows been like? And if it's not specific to flows, like what's the sentiment given this kind of illiquidity and, you know, just the general market returns right now? Yeah, there's more capital coming in from the retail side than the institutional side. Having said that, I wouldn't say it's some dramatic divergence. So there is some capital coming in. And I think the reason is a lot of the retail investors, some of them are very, very much long-term investors. And so I think they understand a little bit better that you just sort of vintage average over time and they can afford to kind of do that. I think that's what's driving it. The other interest area in our fund is also participating in this as a product type is in the credit space. I mean, there's a lot of, Again, retail investors tend to want distributable cash flow. They want dividends. They're less sensitive to appreciation over time, although they like to see that as well. And so the credit, the real estate credit space is pretty attractive at the moment if you just want cash pay that's higher than your historical dividend of three and a half, four percent. It's pretty easy to be. And so JLLIPT to some degree has pivoted a little bit to the credit space and we are writing loans in that strategy. And that seems to, to resonate a lot with people, both on the institutional side and the retail side. So at the end of the day, I think, you know, people are calling this the golden era of credit. And there's some good reasons to think that. But in the short term, it's more just the mathematics. I mean, if you're uncertain about growth, right, and appreciation, why not take six, seven, eight percent in cash pay right now and just wait and see how the markets play out. So both retail and institutional have sort of the same view of of the market, and we don't disagree with that, and we would assume credit strategies will do well in this vintage. So when you're on the road, the 60% of the time, you pop into people's offices with no no warning. I presume when you're popping into your clients' offices, they know that you're coming or they invite you in. What are you hearing? What do investors want to know today, what are the types of questions that they're asking of you as the CEO of LaSalle Investment Management? Most of the, the, the investor conversations very much are, are around opportunities, I would say. So I do think, I think there is capital out there to invest. I think what we're talking to a lot of our investors about is, you know, what's, what's really the definition of a compelling opportunity now and what's really the right return for that? That's on the higher end of of the spectrum. And I think similarly on the core side, it's the same question. I mean, even if you're going to be a long-term holder, right, what is the right sort of pricing context for core today? Assuming you're going to buy in a location in an asset type that you believe is stable, right? Like a multifamily or an industrial. 
But still, what is the right entry price for that, given the fact that there's limited liquidity and all the changes that we've talked about? So a lot of the discussions are about these definitions of, you know, what is really core, right, profile-wise, and how should it be priced? And where is the dislocation? Where is the compelling opportunities? And a lot of it ends up, again, back in the credit space as a way to sort of access how to access some of that. That's why I would put most of the LP conversation. So I don't. I, I feel like there's still a lot of capital out there, whether it's been committed or even in on the sidelines, and it's sort of waiting for kind of the right entry point. I think that's back on us as the managers to sort of generate a pipeline of deals where people say, "Yeah, that that's a good deal. I don't need to." overthink it. I, I like to be in that. And I would say the market, broadly speaking, is not there yet. But I think when you listen to a lot of experts in this space, there's still quite a bit of debt coming due in, in 24 across the globe. And a lot of people's interest rate caps are burning off as well. So, you know, I think consensus is in 24, you'll see a lot of more motion in, in this area around compelling opportunities. Is there any consensus around what is core and what is the entry price for core? I mean, or, or is it still all over the board? I think the criteria for the quality of the asset has definitely tightened. No question about that in terms of whether you look at it as building age or you look at it as the forward dollars for CapEx, whether you look at it if it's in a land-constrained market. So I, I do think, I don't know if there's consensus, but there's a recognition that the quality of the asset has to be a lot better and more defensible over the long term. I think within that, you do get a tangent around climate and sustainability and how a particular asset would fit you know, under that particular lens. That's definitely a, a bigger conversation in Europe, I would say, than in, in the US, but that's also factoring in to this definition of, of what's the new core. And so even if you're in a market that's not as climate oriented or energy oriented, you know, I think it's, it's a reasonable question to ask yourself, I mean, do you buy that insurance now, assuming that that market might transition into that in you know, 10 years from now. So in terms of pricing, I think there's no question that it, you know, it's kind of moved with the yield curve that, you know, core should be 200, 250 basis points higher than what it was at the peak from a total return, total return perspective. But that I would say also comes probably with a much more conservative forward view on the growth dynamics that you're underwriting in your in your cash flow. So although that on its own might not seem like a huge movement in core valuation, I think where the divergence is is how much growth are you underwriting in your cash flow, number one. And number two, how much are you willing to pay for that growth? today because you're that confident in it. And then there's going to be some cases where that's going to be true. Like we do think there's bifurcation in, in how some of these markets are going to play out over the next couple couple years. But again, it just adds to this concept of there's a ton of complexity in the market and it's very, very hard to generalize. If we just shift gears and go kind of around the world, you mentioned one of the changes that you made when you came in is, you know, kind of this one LaSalle, you're operating as a global business versus these regions. 
regions obviously perform differently, markets within regions even more differently. Thematically speaking, are you what do you think are the bright spots right now as you look around the globe from a you know geographical perspective and or from a asset class perspective? So I think for us, we would highlight what we feel pretty good about is in the US, our core funds are we feel are well positioned, mostly because the the redemption queues have not been very long in those funds. And I think a lot of that has to do with a pivot away from office, you know, more than seven or eight years ago. And so that that allocation's fairly low. And so those funds are performing well. In Europe, where we've got an open-ended core fund that has more office to it and, and has more valuation pressure, what's interesting, like in the private markets, in, 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 you know, that fund has sort of taken its write-downs, we think, earlier than most others in, in the market. So although it looks negative today, if you ask me what a bright spot is, it could very well be that that open-ended European core fund comes out of this cycle faster. So it, it's just really going to depend if if investors, when do they get comfortable with a normalization of the interest rate curve so they can price everything and make their al- allocations? Because I do think money will come in back into core. So even though it's not a bright spot today for us in Europe, I think it will be a bright spot. Um, in Asia, you know, Japan continues to, to function extremely well because it's had less of a interest rate shock. I mean, it will have changes in, in its rates, but it's not going to have the multiples in the, in, the, in the severity that we've seen in the other countries. And so the mathematics in Japan, right, debt and equity continue to hold up and outperform relative to the, the rest of the world. And, and 70% of our business is sort of exposed to Japan. So we're going to do as well as, as Japan does, but it looks bright. China's a challenge at the moment. I think there's a lot going on in, in that market. There's a lot of changes in, in the government's approach to the economy. I think that's going to take a few years to work out. Going back to a bright spot, we, we think our European credit business is, is well positioned. We like to be larger in credit. It's probably something we're, we're going to look at going forward. We do think credit's going to have a bigger role in our investors' portfolios going, going forward. We don't think it's a one to two year. Uh, type opportunity. We think it's going to be it's going to be longer. Canada has been a bright spot for us. That's also held. So I think it feels like the smaller, not smaller, but the sort of more self-funded countries, right, have sort of absorbed this uh, interest rate shock a lot better than the kind of open global markets, if you will, like the U.S., like the U.S. or the U- U.K., so we've got a mixed mixed bag in there, but we 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 like the way we're positioned. You know, at the moment we've got significant dry powder to invest, so we're active in, in you know across the risk spectrum, and we're just we're waiting for the market to get to a point where buyers and sellers are happy with the with the outcome versus the grind that we're going through at the moment. So what do you tell your teams? You know, you mentioned you have a lot of people who haven't been through a cycle before, at least a downturn, a lot of up and to the right people in, in the organization. And you know, if you're not transacting, a lot of real estate people get in the business because they want to transact, right? They, they want to be active. And it sounds like not only you, but a lot of your peers are, there's no activity right now. We're very limited. What are you telling them? How do you get the group through this period to the other side when it sounds like there's going to be a once in a generation opportunity perhaps? Yeah, I think it's, a, it's definitely a topic we talk about. First of all, we try to, under the transparency 
pillar. We try to emphasize to folks, this is a cyclical business. Even though this might be your first downturn, don't be surprised. They're, they're, this is a long-term cyclical business. If you're uncomfortable by that or you don't like that, then actually you got to think about whether this is the right industry for you because you've got to have a long-term view. That's number one. If you have a long-term view, then the rest of this can fit into the construct. If you have a short-term opportunistic kind of view and, and you sort of jump, want to jump around to where the action is, I'm not saying that's a wrong strategy. It's just a completely different strategy than a long-term private equity shop like ours is, is trying to build over time, right? We are taking a long view similar to our investors. So that, that's the first thing. First thing is kind of what, what's your worldview? In terms of less transaction activity, you know, I think there's still activity. It's just not closed transactions. So I do still think that the teams are really looking and underwriting and sort of testing different pricing metrics. And so there is, you know, it's not as busy from a closing perspective, but it's still fairly active. I mean, the message that we're relating to people is that, you know, there's sort of the flow business that you're going to see out there. And then there's going to be this more dislocated or more interesting business. And so if you got more time, you know, do we pivot to start looking in other areas that we haven't historically looked at? So it's an opportunity for our younger teammates to kind of explore, right, other relationships. And before there really wasn't time to do that, you, you had capital, you had to get it out. It was under sort of a timing pressure to some degree. And it was more of a quarterly kind of activity. So it opens the door to start thinking more more creatively. And lastly, you know, I, I try to tell our younger cohorts, you know, just be patient. I mean, you have to have patience in this business and these down cycles. If you feel like you're in a good place where you're learning, then for your career, whatever you end up doing, that's the number one thing. So this is a definitely a good learning opportunity in terms of looking back at some of the deals we did and what worked, what didn't work, and, and how does that apply to today's market? So final question or questions, what's one thing that you're kind of thinking about today that maybe some of your peers aren't? And that can either be, you know, opportunities or challenges. It can be economic, business, personal, if you'd like. But, you know, what what's one thing that you're focused on today? Well, I kind of wish I stuck with the coffee business back in the <laughs> 1992, but no. That was a fun business. I would say, you know, this is, I mean, it's not so much a LaSalle strategy. It's probably more interesting or personal to me. Like the truly affordable housing in the U.S., you know, the Section 8, the truly regulated tax credit stuff, like something's got to be done over there, right? Like that, I don't really get that structure. And I know it's tax driven, but it just seems like there's a ton of fees coming out of that whole structure and and you would think there's a better way to deliver that particular product and still make a reasonable return over over time so i don't you know probably know enough about that to try to figure out how you would disrupt it but i think you know so i'm not talking about workforce housing which is a little bit more market rate i'm talking about really government section a tax driven is there a different business model there that that could could make a difference in delivery. So that's it's been something that I've been thinking about lately. I don't have an answer to it and probably won't 
won't solve it, but at least it's it's occupying my some of my limited remaining brain power. Last question for our listeners who have made it this far. Let's reward them with something that they'll only learn here on the distribution podcast. What's one thing that we wouldn't know about you from reading, you know, your LinkedIn, your bio on the LaSalle website, a newspaper, whatever internet article that quotes you? What's one unique thing? I'm a pretty avid post-war U.S. ceramic art collector. All right. Do you have a favorite piece? I've got, there's, there's only a handful of artists that really fall into it. And when you think about post-war, it really means more abstract ceramics for what people usually think about. But I don't have a specific, you know, artist because I, I don't want to give away what I'm buying on, on the secondary option auction sites, but just leave it as U.S. post-war abstract ceramics. Mark, this has been great. If anybody wants to reach out to you or learn more about LaSalle, what's the best way for them to either get in touch or learn more about the business? LinkedIn. You can find me. You can find me on LinkedIn and drop me a note there. That's probably the easiest. I really enjoyed the conversation. Great to see you, Mark. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you like today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash B Sedloff. Or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at juniperquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time.